Good morning, Cross Point. Children already know. They're gone. As soon as I step up, they're gone. That's all right. I don't take it personal. <laughs> um, we will be continuing in our sermon series on the invitation to retreat. This is our second sermon in the series. Uh, This particular sermon will be entitled Self-Examination, but before we actually jump into our sermon for today, I wanted to give us a recap of what we discussed last week so that that could kind of set us up for this week. Um, This is a five-part series. Again, this is the second part of this five-part series on an invitation to retreat, and this is a very highly practical series. It's very applicational. Um, if you've been at Crosspoint for any amount of time, you know that we generally go through books of the Bible. We do exegetical preaching. And seeing that our pastor, Steve, is actually on a sabbatical during this period, he's, he'll be gone for a couple more weeks. It's a total of a 12-week sabbatical, a much-needed time for him to rest, uh, recuperate, and um, just kind of get his heart and mind readjusted to... Uh, just, you know, the, the, the toils of ministry it can really begin to take a toll on you. And so we really felt like Steve needed to have a time away. So as he is enjoying his sabbatical, my thinking behind this series was to also invite us as a congregation to be able to enter into some of that rest. And so that's what this series is about. So by way of recap, last week, uh, the sermon was entitled The Invitation, The Invitation to Retreat. And The whole basis of this is that our life and our culture is a very busy culture. We're very busy people. We have lots of responsibilities. We have children we have to take care of. We have work responsibilities. We have children's soccer games that we have to take them to and all these different things that life places demands on us to keep moving, to keep busy. And the premise that I started with last week is that often the busyness of life often hinders us from being able to really hear the voice of God. The pace of life and the schedules that we have often restrict our ability to be able to sit in God's presence and to linger there to hear what he has to say. And so the invitation to retreat was essentially an invitation to allow yourself to linger in the presence of God. I think we've all experienced lingering somewhere where we really just wanted to stay there forever. It could be that lunch break that you had where you really don't want to go back to work and you're trying to milk the clock for as much time as is possible so that you don't have to go back to work, right? Or it could be that vacation that you went on and you wait till the last minute to pack your bags because you really just don't want to leave. Or maybe it's that sunset that you just want to continue to soak in it until, I don't know, the mosquitoes start biting you and you just, you know, smacking yourself You just want to suck up that experience. And so my whole thing is, the invitation to retreat is an invitation to linger, to allow yourself the space without rushing onto your daily activities where you can actually meet God. And so we defined what a retreat was, and that'll be up on your slide here, and it says, an extended block of time where you make yourself exclusively available to God alone in a different and less distracting place where your focus is on hearing from God directly. It's an invitation to be fully present in the presence of God. We also talked about why retreat is important. That'll be the next slide. 
And we talked about often that our time with God can become solely a time where you're just feeding your head with head knowledge and you grow in your brain information, but your heart can often be unengaged with God. It can sometimes be an accumulation of information, but yet our character fails to take on the characteristics and the traits that resemble Christ. And we talked about two areas where this is evident. Number one, the things that we truly and deeply hunger for. And we also talked about the things that we are broken or upset about. And if we assess where we are with regard to the things that we really hunger, the things that we're really pursuing in life, are those things truly the things that Christ hungers and thirsts for? Or the things that we get upset about, the things that get under our skin, are those things the things that God would truly be upset about? Or is it simply just our preferences that we're bothered by? We also talked about retreat being necessary because the deepest change that we desire, that we're powerless to bring about those changes in our lives. And I'm talking about those deep character traits, right? The deep character traits where we know that there is something deficient in us and we have, the, we have no power to change those things. We also talked about we need a retreat because we become what we behold. And we read a passage of scripture in the Psalms where it talks about those who worship idols become like their idols. And so this space of retreat gives us an opportunity to uninterrupted have our affections placed before God where we can become, again, captivated by who God is. And that's where that transformation takes place as we are in the presence of God. We also talked about how to prepare for a retreat. You just don't want to up and leave. You want to at least let people know what you're doing. We talked about a couple places where you can go for retreat. There are a couple places that I know of here that we talked about last week. We also talked about what to do when you're on retreat, that it's more than just the activities that you do, but it's really the posture of listening to God, and that can take place in a number of different ways as you spend time in his presence alone. We also talked about the example that Jesus set, that in numerous places in Scripture throughout his ministry, Jesus repeatedly left the crowds. He even left his disciples sometimes. They were like, where's Jesus? He's gone. And he would be overnight praying, maybe even for a couple of days, and he's just gone. And that if Jesus himself took the time to retreat, that there must be something to it that we should pay attention to. And so he's teaching by example. And my point also was not to say that if you're not doing this, that you're in sin, like it's not meant for it to be a thing where you beat yourself up about it, but it's just the fact that there is something missing if this is not something that you have a part of your life. And to be honest, for many of us, I would venture to say that our times with God, our devotional times, our typical devotional times, really don't have that lingering quality to it. A lot of times, it's almost like that protein bar that we, we eat sometimes where, you know, we kind of get this one little thing and we just kind of try to eat it and we try to soak up as much as we can, but it really doesn't have that sense of that lingering of just wanting to wait to see what God has to say because we have our schedule that we have to go to. We got to go to school. We got to go to work. And we have our schedule that we have to keep up with. And we don't have that margin of space where God can really slow our hearts and our minds down to hear what he has to say to us. And then we closed with the fact that God desires to meet with us. 
more than we desire to meet with God, God desires to eat with, meet with us more than we do, number one. Number two, he initiates this process, and he also gives us promptings to pull aside. Sometimes he gets us sick. Sometimes he causes us to get injured. Sometimes he brings these obstacles in our path to slow us down, but we don't want to stop. We don't see the warning signs, and we think that we can handle it. And so God initiates this process by giving us invitations to retreat, to pull back, to slow down. And thirdly, God also teaches us in this space. In other words, you don't need sermons during this time. You don't need your commentaries. That God himself can teach you in that space because at some point, if you're alone with God, you're going to have to be able to discern the voice of the Lord for yourself. And so that kind of sets us up for our time today for our sermon on self-examination. Now, I want to say this from the onset that I pray that when you hear me preaching, that your heart is not, man, I need to do more of this, or like, I'm so bad and I'm so horrible, I need to try harder. Because trying harder will not achieve and accomplish this work. It really has to be a work of God, and it really has to be a desire-based work that God creates a desire for himself in your heart so that you can then pursue him as you should. So, self-examination. The first slide, I'm, I'm, I'm defining self-examination as, as you are spending your time in retreat in God's presence, the ability to see ourselves as God sees us. Being able to see ourselves as God sees us. And I want to say two brief things before I get more into that, is that first of all, this is a gift of God. For us to be able to see ourselves as God sees us, is a gift from God. We can't do that in and of ourselves. We can't do that without God illuminating our eyes to be able to see ourselves correctly. And number two, at the heart of self-examination is how our hearts engage with God when we are in his presence. And I think we can all relate to the fact that, you know, sometimes you may go out with somebody, and um, I often use illustrations that um, have, like, dating stuff related to it because, you know, when your heart is actually in something, there's just a different feel. And so you can be hanging out with a person, but your heart's really not in it. And you'd rather be somewhere else. Like, you know, they had a song that says, my, my, mind is, uh, my body's here with you, but my mind is on the other side of town. Some of you guys may not know that song, but nonetheless, you get the point, right? You can be physically with somebody, but your heart is totally somewhere else. So, <clears throat> oh Okay, lost my spot here. <laughs> there we go. Right. So at the heart of self-examination is how our hearts engage when we are in God's presence. So going on to the first point, number one, why is self-examination necessary? And point number one is this, that God gives clarity because we cannot see ourselves clearly. That God gives us clarity because we cannot see ourselves clearly. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, if you want to turn there, is a very critical verse, a very popular verse, and it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart is deceitful, meaning that the heart is very misleading. It's very misguiding. 
that you can't trust it totally. And the author goes on to talk about the fact that it's above all things, like all of the sickness that we see in the world is a result of what goes on in the hearts and the minds of men. So much to the point where he says, who can know it? Who can know the depth of the heart? Because we're so deceitful that the things that we know that are wrong to do, that we often find ways of covering it up and dressing it up so that it looks like it's actually something righteous. And so we have these naturally corrupted lenses through which we view things. And the scriptures are saying that we cannot trust that in and of ourselves. And this is how worse it can get. Judges chapter 21 verse 25 says this. In those days, there, were no, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his, own, in his own eyes. That everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I don't know if you've ever been to a four-way stop, and it's like, the person that gets there first gets to go first. But everybody just, just decided that they just want to go whenever they want to go. Just imagine the whole cosmos of people determining that we're just going to do whatever's right in our own eyes. And not only is it talking about kings, but it also talks about common people too as well. In Proverbs chapter 21, verse 2, it says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. And so there's a deceitfulness that we naturally have as people where the stuff that we do that's actually sin we try to pass it off like it's righteousness. Like you've probably heard this, where people say, well, you know, I didn't mean to. I didn't, I didn't mean to offend you. I mean, yeah, I didn't mean to. Or, well, maybe you shouldn't be so easily offended. Right? Maybe you just shouldn't take it so personally. Or you might have heard this one, where people say, well, I was just speaking the truth in, in love. Knowing good and well, there's nothing truthful about what you just said. Or we even justify it by saying, well, you know, I'm just a straight shooter. You know, that's just the way I am. And so there are many ways, many different ways in which we try to pass off what we do and we're deceitful with it. And that's just the heart that we have as human beings. So much so that Jeremiah continues and he says, I, the Lord, search the heart I test the mind to give every man according to the fruit of his deeds. And so the deceitfulness that's deep-rooted in our hearts, we truly can't understand, and we need the lens of God in order for us to be able to see ourselves clearly as we should. Point two, proper, proper self-examination is the doorway through which we'll be able to walk in the freedom that Christ provides. Proper self-examination is the doorway through which we're able to walk in the freedom that Christ provides. I'll be reading from John chapter 4 if you want to turn there. And as you turn to John chapter 4, I'm going to set the background for this story. Jesus is moving from Galilee to Samaria where he stops at a well to get water. And at this well, there's a woman who's drawing water from the well. And according to the commentators, it was very untypical for a woman to be at a well at this time of day. Normally, they would go later on in the day when it's cool. But apparently, this is close to the midday hour. And 
she is drawing water at that time. And so not, not only was it untypical for her to be there at that time, but it's also untypical, if you're familiar with the story, for Jews to have interactions with Samaritans. And so he asks this woman for a drink, and she kind of gives him, you know, the, the, the head nod and says, no, well, we're not supposed to be talking, right? Jews and Samaritans, we don't talk. To which Jesus responds, well, if you only knew who I was and who you were speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And so the woman's curiosity is aroused and she says, well, tell me more. And so Jesus talks about this living water that he has, that he could give her. And in verse 15, the woman says, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so then in verse 16, he says, go and call your husband and come here. Uh, Go call your husband and come here. And she responds, I have no husband. And in verse 17, she says, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you will now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And so here we have a picture of a person that is factually accurate, but yet she is spiritually bound. A person who has her facts correct, but yet she is spiritually bound. There are a couple things I want to say. First of all, Jesus knew that she didn't have a husband. But Jesus also knew that the weariness that she had with going repeatedly to this well and drawing from this well was only but an outward reflection of a deeper inward problem that she had. And it's interesting that Jesus affirms the factual accuracy of her statement where she says, I have no husband. That was factually, it was correct. But it was really irrelevant because her situation was way worse than the facts that she acknowledged at that point, that she was bound. And what Jesus was doing, he was trying to direct her past factual information to what could actually truly free her. That the fact was, or the truth was, that she had been going to multiple men to try to get what they could never fulfill deep in her heart and her soul. Jesus was trying to direct her to become free. And so the purpose of self-examination is for us to be able to get past a point of factual statements, but to actually get to a place where we can actually confront what is true so that we could be free. And so how does this apply to us? Well, the fact is, for many of us, we attend church every Sunday. But the truth may be that we have resentment against the same people that we're in church with. Or the fact may be that you spoke to such and such at church. But the truth may be that there is gossip in our hearts regarding the same people that we interact with. Fact may be that we give to the church. But the truth may also be that in private we are withholding from God. Or the fact may be that we've given our lives to Christ, but the truth may be that we really don't have much affection for this God that we claim. 
The fact may be that you read or you pray, but the truth may be that your heart is really disengaged from the person that you're praying to. The fact may be that you're saved, you've been saved for years, but the truth may also be that the passage of time, throughout the passage of time, that your heart has become more and more distant from God. And so self-examination is simply being able to get past the stuff that we call facts to get to the place of truth of where our hearts really are. And later on in the same passage of Scripture, John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus says that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There has to be that truth component in our lives where not only is God illuminating our hearts to us so that we could see where our hearts truly are, but that we bring all of who we are to God so that he could change us. And so even the same woman in John chapter 4, verse 29, she she goes on to say, come and see a man that told me everything that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? In other words, she encountered a person who was able to help her to discover where her true thirst was. And so proper self-examination then allows us to be able to walk in the freedom that Christ provides if we're able to truly bear our hearts and our souls before the person of Jesus. And then point number three, proper self-examination enables us to help others. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and I'll start at verse 1. And it reads, Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye? Um, I'm sorry, out of your own eye when there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly so that you could take the speck out of your brother's eye. And what Jesus is describing here is a certain type of judgment. And what he's speaking against is this hypocritical type of judgment where he's saying the message is, don't do this lest the same thing happen to you. In proportion to what you dish out, that is also what you would receive. Now, I know there's a lot of talk about judgment these days, and people often say, well, don't judge me. If you read in Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus also says, you will know them by their fruit. Well, he's describing false teachers, right? And so there is this sense in which God does permit us to evaluate and to discern people by virtue of what they say, by virtue of what they do. But what Jesus is speaking against is hypocritical judgment. And he goes on to define what this hypocritical judgment looks like, what this hypocrisy looks like. First of all, number one, it's easily detecting in others what we fail to detect in ourselves. 
And this happens so frequently where we're so attuned to notice the errors and the bad things that other people do when we fail to recognize the same things in ourselves. The other thing is assuming that we're correct in our assessment of others, but when it comes to others' judgment of us, it's like, well, you can't judge me. You can't say that. You don't know my motives, right? And so Jesus' encouragement to us is to take the log. In other words, examine ourselves. And once we've been able to deal with our hearts, the depth of the crevices of our heart, then we'll be able to be in a position where we can actually help someone else out, where we can actually be a benefit to someone else. And so self-examination is needed so that we can be a benefit to others. By way of application, self-examination requires a time of silence. And as I've already alluded to, the pace of our lives really often restricts our ability to be able to sit in a space where we're truly able to examine our hearts. And it really does require a time of silence. And sometimes that silence might need to be a long time where our hearts and our minds can actually be settled in order for us to do this. Hence, the need for something similar to a retreat. Psalm chapter 23, verse 2 says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. And essentially what that's a picture of is a shepherd literally putting a sheep down on all fours. And without a block of time for God to be able to allow this self-examination to take place, there's a lot of stuff that we miss. We're accustomed to movement. We're accustomed to going, the hustle and bustle, the pace of life, that it's really difficult for us to slow down sometimes. And to be honest, even when we do slow down, it's like we don't know what to do with it. We don't, wanna, we don't know what to do. We, we want to fill it with stuff to drown the silence that we're experiencing. And one of the things that we can often do is rely on our favorite preachers or, or, or books or, or sermons to kind of drown out that space because we don't know what to do when we're in God's presence. And that can become a safety that we have in people who are smarter than we are or more theologically um, educated because we don't know how to engage with God. And my encouragement to us today is it's okay. God can teach you directly if you make yourself available in his presence. He teaches you, and that's what he wants. He doesn't want all the information that you get to be filtered through someone else. God wants your undivided attention. And so just like, again, in a dating relationship, you have to spend time with that person to find out what they like and to find out more about their character and their personality, it's the same thing in our relationship with God, that it has to be an uninterrupted space. It has to be something where it's, again, just you and God so that God is able to teach you. And so my prayer today is that God would give us a divine curiosity and the patience to wait in his presence. Psalm chapter 38 verse 15 says, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. This waiting on the Lord is something that we all have to learn. And that's how God is able to bring certain things to the surface in our lives 
when we set apart that time and we wait on him. The second thing, by way of application, is paying attention to what God brings to the surface when you're in this place of self-examination. What is it that God is bringing to your attention? It could be a scripture verse. It could be an interaction that you had with someone. It could be a single word. It could be an image. It could be even just an unsettled feeling and you quite, can't quite identify where, where your heart is. Sometimes God allows you to be disturbed, your emotions to be disturbed for the purpose of communicating a message to you. But again, if our pace of life is so hustle and bustle, we don't allow God the space to be able to communicate or for us to be able to hear what God is saying, because God is always speaking, and oftentimes it's in that soft whisper. But if our hearts aren't in a place where we're settled, we can often miss that. And so in the space of paying attention, my encouragement would be to allow yourself to be present with whatever that is, whatever you feel like he's drawing to your attention, and let him direct that exchange between you and him. Finally, the examine. Some of you may be familiar with this, but it's on the slide, and the definition is simply this. An attitude of reviewing your day in the presence of God. It is a time set aside for thankful reflection on where God is in your everyday life. It has five components. Um, could take anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes. Could be longer, just kind of depending on how you structure your time. And the five different components are, first of all, asking God for light. Asking God for light. And it says simply this. I want to look at my day with God's eyes, not merely my own. I want to look at my day with God's eyes, merely not my own. Number two, give thanks. The day I have just lived is a gift from God. Be grateful for it. Number three, reviewing the day. I carefully look back on the day that I just completed, being guided by the Holy Spirit. Number four, face your shortcomings, meaning that I face up to what I did wrong in my life and in me. And number five, I'm looking forward to the day to come where you ask God for what you need for the next day. This is something that many Christians have done throughout history. And for many of us, the pace of life can really begin to wear on us where we're really not reflecting on where our hearts are throughout the day and how we engage not only with God but also with other people. And so the examine is simply a means whereby we're able to trace the movement of our hearts and not only that, but also to trace where we find God. Because there are many encounters that we do have that we often really don't notice that God is in it. 
And so what I want to do today in closing is to actually apply this, because I know for many of us, again, we leave church and we get to, you know, socializing or we get into fellowshipping with other people or we go out for lunch. And this just becomes another sermon that's been preached. And there is nothing that we actually apply to our lives based on what we hear. I want us just to take a couple moments to do what I just described here. And if you can, for a moment, just think over the last 24 hours, where have you seen God? Could be an interaction with your child that just reminded you of the love that God has for you. Could be, I don't know, a verse of scripture that you have been meditating on this week. Could be an interaction that you had with someone. Could have been sunrise. Maybe it might might be the cool weather. Where have you recognized God within the last 24 hours? And also trace the movement of your hearts, your interactions with people over the last 24 hours. What is God bringing to the surface? I want to give us just a couple moments to do that. And then I'll close in a word of prayer. 